from the Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce, this is In Conversation With, supported by Westcott's Chartered Accountants and Business Advisors, presented by Stuart Alford and produced by Fresh Air Studios Plymouth. Hello there, I'm Stuart Elford, Chief Executive of Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce, with another edition of our In Conversation with podcast, where we speak to high-profile figures from around the region. And today I'm absolutely delighted to have in someone who's been a great friend of the Chamber already, Brigadier Mike Tanner, who's Naval Base Commander at Devonport. Welcome, Brigadier. Stuart, thanks so much. Great to be here. Thank you. I really appreciate you joining us. I was looking at your bio. You're quite a busy man. So running the base, which I understand, and this I've taken off the website, has 12,000 employees, 20,000 visitors a month, supplies 10% of the Plymouth workforce and 14% of the Plymouth economy. So that's Monday sorted. What do you do with the rest of the week? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's an amazing place. It's an extraordinary privilege to be in command of a naval base like that. But yeah, it's a fantastic thing. It's a great opportunity for development over the next couple of decades, actually. And you know, if it sounds busy now, it's about to get a lot busier. It is. So what are the current challenges? Because it's a big job. Yeah, so the current challenge really is about sort of pivoting from previously being largely about supporting the warships and their engineering programmes, pivoting towards supporting the submarines and their engineering and deep engineering programmes. So surface ships moving to submarines, but actually holding on to the surface ships as well. So, you know, Type 26 is about to arrive in the next couple of years, still keeping the Royal Marines. So lots of activity, but just really focusing on the submarine maintenance. And a sort of side question, really. I've lived in Plymouth most of my life, and I love Plymouth. It does occasionally occur to me that there's quite a few nuclear reactors quite close to me. Should I be worried (laughs) from a safety point of view? I mean... Here's the first point. Nobody lives closer to those nuclear reactors than me. Uh, <laughs> so if you yeah. feel safe, so, I should. <laughs> so if I'm all right about it, you should feel all right. So a significant part of my working week and a significant part of the activity for the team is about making sure that they are both secure and that they are safe. So, yeah, there's a huge amount of investment of time and effort into that. Yeah, I would guess there is. And that number of people wouldn't work there if they didn't feel safe. But it does just occasionally occur to me. It's like, and I guess I was brought up in an era where the word nuclear was very scary. I remember the videos of the two minute warning film. So it comes with a certain degree of fear. And I I think that's one of the problems with, you know, as soon as you hear the word nuclear, people have those sorts of imaginings. Of course, the issue is that what you're talking about is the use of a weapon system. We don't have those weapon systems in the base. Uh, You know, we have nuclear powered submarines. We don't keep the weapon system down here. So the image you have of of Hiroshima and the Second World War, it's completely unrelistic to anything that can happen in the naval base. That's good to know. <laughs> of course, what you ought to think about, perhaps in the sort of current era, is in terms of how much safer should we feel as a nation as a result of the fact we have a nuclear deterrence capability. Yeah. And in a way, we almost need to sort of pivot the conversation to be, you know, we should be proud as a city that we support the national defence and the national deterrence, rather than sort of, I wouldn't say not worrying about sort of the safety issue, because absolutely you should make sure that that is safe. But there's a piece of sort of pivoting the discussion from worrying about a nuclear strike as compared to the capability and the safety we provide the nation. Oh, absolutely. And Plymouth as a city has always been proud, not only of its naval heritage, but how it steps up in times of conflict. I'm just old enough to remember the Falklands conflict and the naval base transformed overnight. People were sleeping on the floor to get everything ready and to work all out. That's the point. We do support that. And what I'm really pleased, you've come in and you, a bit like Babcock, wants to kind of tear down the wall. They can't physically because you're a nuclear base, but metaphorically, you've done the same. You've become a great friend to Plymouth Area Business Council. You host dinners there, but you want to be more than that. You want to support local business. Is that important to you? It's incredibly important. The success of the Navy and our ability to support the nation is hinging upon getting the delivery right inside the naval 
Everbase and the ability to deliver success inside the Everbase is hinging upon the people of this area and specifically the city providing the right skills and the right profiles to be able to support them over the next couple of generations so it's a really really positive story you know and there's upwards of 50 to 70 years of work guaranteed in the yard and it's a pretty high profile strata of work as well it's not yeah, it, highly it, technical and highly paid now and exactly. not the old days of being sort of all grease and oil and just painting ships I mean we are talking very high value jobs very specific high value technical engineering that's exactly the point there is a perception that you know it's all oily rags and diesel engines look I mean clearly we have diesel engines in there and we've got oily rags <laughs> but actually the focus is changing completely from that yeah. you know, it is as you say you know it's moving towards high tech nuclear of course high tech engineering but the autonomous the sort of the AI driven sort of capabilities some really impressive work that's coming through there an opportunity that's coming through there over the next couple of decades and some amazing bits of kit I should think I yeah. think you probably have some good toys I shouldn't call them toys but you've got some pretty amazing kit in there haven't you? yes we've got some amazing bits of kit yeah, <laughs> yeah not toys definitely not toys and I suppose your job now is relatively I wouldn't say deskbound but office on site you're not traveling as much as you have previously in your career yeah, very little travelling at the moment. I mean, I'm sort of six months into the job, really, so I'm still very much in the sort of the understand phase, you know. So I spend a lot of time on the ground, you know, walking around the naval base, getting to sort of know individuals and getting to know sort of capabilities, pieces of equipment and sort of profile of how we operate. Hopefully in the next couple of years, that develops more to perhaps having a more national footprint, working out how we interoperate with you know, Rolls-Royce and other naval bases, etc. So, But at the moment, I'm very much looking to focus internally. But yeah, certainly not internationally. That's not yeah. where I'm going. But that hasn't always been the case, has it? Because you've had several deployments around the world on serials and tours, including into active war zones. Mm. Yeah. I'm the wrong side of 50 now. Some of that is young person's business, and some of it is just sort of the way your career profile works out. Yeah, the first 15, 20 years, I was very active all around the world, running around in a green suit, getting involved in some pretty interesting things. And then the last 10, 15 years have been more looking to sort of the management of defence. And that's, say, equally fascinating. Generally speaking, a lot less dangerous. Well, yes. I don't know if you're allowed to talk about it but you were one of the first into iraq in one of the first conflicts weren't you mm, i was yeah wearing a different uniform yes so i moved across to the u.s back in 99 with a family plan being to work in the embassy and largely across in the pentagon for a couple of years and i did that for a couple of years all the way through the summer of 2001 and then i was off the opportunity to move back down to North Carolina and become the cold weather instructor for the US Marine Corps in 2nd Marine Division. So I did that. Great opportunity. Expected to spend my next couple of years doing lots of cold weather training, lots of skiing. Actually, what happened, of course, was 9-11 later yeah. on that year. So whilst we did do a bit of cold weather training, I then spent the best part of a year in Iraq at the back end of that, wearing an American uniform. A desert uniform rather than snow. Yes. Sand rather than snow. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was a sort of a pivotal moment, I suppose. It was a perfect demonstration of Klaus Schwarz's idea about fate and what happens in war. It's just about everything that happened in that war was certainly unexpected to me and I think actually largely unexpected to a lot of people so really fascinating well to us mere mortals that sounds terrifying but you were awarded the US Bronze Star with Combat Valor Decoration for your role in An Nazira mm. if I pronounce that right in 2003 yeah. hey, can you tell us about that are you not able to no I can't no so you'll recall the plan for the invasion was very much about fast running streams of military activity culminating in a double envelopment at Baghdad and again but things happen in war which were unexpected we were supposed to take a crossroads which would allow this passage of these large forces to take place 
And as one of those forces came through, we got caught in a massive ambush, or they got caught in a massive ambush, which we then came in to sort of rescue them from. There's a particular high-profile young lady, Jessica Lynch, was captured by the local sort of warriors in that city, and we got involved in rescuing her. Mm. So that was what the Valor Declaration was for. I probably don't want to know any more details, but you were also awarded the OBE and Queen's Commendation for Valuable Service. So you're racking up the medals at the moment. A Queen's Commendation for Valuable Service was my second year in, in Iraq, and that was a couple of years later. Pretty strange to go back, actually. I haven't been there involved in, involved in there for the invasion. To then go back and into a staff role, I was the operations officer for a multinational division in the south of Iraq. Pretty strange to sort of see what had happened over the next couple of years, and actually most of it was probably a retrograde sort of step back from the invasion. You know, we were genuinely, so we crossed the line on the invasion. We were welcomed by children sort of throwing sweets at us and garlands and all the rest of it. That was right. not the case when we went back three years later. So that's where I got the QCBS, and the OBE was for transforming Portsmouth now base. So I was the captain of the base there, so the deputy commander in mm. Portsmouth. And my job for sort of three and a half years was to get Portsmouth ready for the arrival of the carriers. And I was very, very proud to receive the OB as a result of that. So you've had a pretty active service so far. And I hope you don't mind me saying this, but you're quite intimidating because you are built like the proverbial brick outhouse <laughs> and in uniform. You're taller than me and not many people are. And you are about as wide as you are tall, I think. You're obviously taking care of yourself still and your fitness. Yeah, fitness becomes part of your being as a Royal Marine Commando. So I've always enjoyed doing that. It was one of the reasons I was attracted to get into the career in the first place. I've always enjoyed... uh certain elements of the fitness. I love lifting weights, still do to this day, in the gym most days if I can. The running piece I've struggled with, I've never been a natural runner anyway, but I weigh 22 stone, so it's not great on the knees, and the knees are sort of withered, and, and so is my back <laughs> over the last couple of years. But yeah, I still enjoy working out, I still love being in the gym, and I run as much as I can. I'm glad you're still smiling and not offended at that question, because <laughs> I wouldn't want to fight you, I don't think. And I believe you had the privilege of working as, is it an aide de comp, is that what they call it? Is that what the ADC stands for? I'm currently an ADC to the Royal Household which essentially means that I am the Crown's representative for military activity in this region. So the Lord Lieutenant looks after all royal visits and royal business in the county as the royal family's prime point of contact. But if there's military activity in the local area, then I would normally get involved in that. All right. Fascinating work. Mm. Did you meet the Queen? Were you lucky enough to meet the Queen? I have in the background in the past, but I haven't in this current job. But hopefully we're bringing some more royal visitors down to the city and, and to the dockyard in the next few years. Yeah, it'd be good to get the King down here, wouldn't it, so, in, his, in his new realm? <laughs> discussions are already in place to sort of see what might be achieved over the next couple of years in that area. Well, that would be good. I mean, great to see them down here. So let's go back to where it started. How did it start and what got you into the military? I think like a lot of people, it's a curious sort of uh, passage you get into that. I've got a good friend of mine who stumbled into a recruiting office because he was trying to get out of the rain. And uh, whilst he was in there, he got attracted by the posters. Mine wasn't quite like that, but it wasn't a million miles away. I was brought up in Bedfordshire and I was looking for a career which would be exciting. I lived about seven miles away from Luton Airport. I thought, OK, this would be good. I'll become a pilot. And, you know, you get attracted by the things which are in your local area. I work for British Airways and fly out of Luton. So I wrote to BA and they said, well, what you need to do is basically join the armed forces and the air force or yeah. fleet air arm and we'll pick you up once you're a trained pilot and so i wandered into the recruiting office and within about 10 minutes they said well sorry about this but you can't you're just too big you can't fit in a cockpit if you ever had to eject we'd rip your knees off and that's probably yeah. not a good thing it's bad for the image of that service so you know 16 years old with my best marks and spencers blazer on i sort of trooped back out again and just as i was leaving the afco there was a recruiting sergeant from the royal marines he sort of said look you know you talked a lot about enjoying outdoors life and scouts i've been involved heavily sort of scouting at that point Loved doing sort of competitive hiking and camping and, you know, rugby and all the rest of that sort of thing. And he said, well, look, you've thought about the Royal Marines. And that was my first introduction. I thought he was a very impressive man, just the way he spoke and his experiences, the things that he'd done. 
you know, based out in the jungle, based out in Norway. I thought, this is fascinating. So, yeah, he sent me a couple of brochures. I flicked through those and thought, this is great. I went along for an introductory visit to the Kamala Train Centre, age 17. And from the moment I walked through the gates, I thought, this is absolutely fantastic. These are the sort of people I would like to work with for the rest of my life. And I was hooked. Mm. So I joined at 17 and a half and I'm still here. And because I had the great privilege three years ago to command the Command and Train Centre, so I did that for sort of oh, right. two and a half, three years. And that was just fantastic to sort of bring me back to my roots again of being in charge of how we train all the commandos in this country. It's a fantastically enjoyable job. The commando training is one of the toughest sort of military training you can do isn't it did you look back at that fondly or was it as tough as it seems both i mean yeah i mean it's de facto the longest military training in nato that's a fact whether it's the hardest you know there's lots of people from other different regiments that will come in and tell you theirs is harder more challenging whatever it's definitely challenging it definitely creates a certain ability in an individual to sort of survive and deal with very demanding circumstances but did i enjoy it it was fantastic one of the best years of my life mm. i still meet up with the guys that i went through training with we still laugh about the stupid things we do when we're in training so a great deal of humor great sort of pivotal moment in my life and yeah i loved it well it's funny you should mention the humor because i've always loved the squaddy sense of humor and i guess you need it to get through some of that i remember this i don't know if you remember this but there was a guy interviewed on the radio when the defense secretary of the time was trying to describe what i think it was basra was like and said basra is like southampton and they interviewed a squaddy who said it's not a bit like southampton he's either never been to basra he's never been to southampton he said there's no beer there's no prostitutes and people keep shooting at us it's more like Portsmouth <laughs> and I love that sense of humour I mean yeah. did you find that through your career that's helped especially in some of those really tricky situations yeah definitely that humour that camaraderie I mean I sort of first picked it up I suppose in the camaraderie you get in a rugby team mm. where you know you sort of you bind together and you create a bit of humour out of a situation and you get through a game you get to enjoy that moment afterwards and then I found that in a much more deep rooted way in the military that sort of camaraderie but sort of laced with humour for the Royal Marines you know we put sort of humour in the face of adversity as being one of our key four tenants of our ethos so we absolutely sort of specify how important that is and we embrace it and yeah can i give you examples of where it's been really useful absolutely the first time i came under a skull attack in iraq you know we all huddled into a little irrigation tube which was a shelter from the attack and we're all waiting in there sat with our masks on waiting to see if whether this skull was going to deliver a chemical attack because of course that's why mm. we were there so yeah, yeah. right to believe it and anyway we got the all clear and as i took my mask off i sort of said to these u.s marines next to me well that wasn't ideal was it and uh they just sort of completely went off on one well, of course it's not ideal it's sort of, sort of, sort of an attack you know, they were really sort of quite stressed they didn't understand the understated yeah, British yeah, humour exactly that and so you know and it's, it's, you suddenly just realise in those moments like that that the way that you've dealt with situations you know, I can think of others in early tours of Northern Ireland where 25,000 people walking towards you just stood in the middle of the road and they're all banging drums and telling people they want to sort of do nasty things to you and you have to create some humour in a moment like that that's how we sort of grew up with that and then for the Americans a very different psyche definitely not embracing that sort of level of humour and for somebody like me in the middle of all that it's quite a sort of stark reminder yeah differences of, of sort of ethos you know i was in the police service similar sometimes that mm. what you call black sense of humor yeah. that you have to otherwise you'd if you thought about it too seriously but i also remember some fun stuff i remember um, that comes out of adversity i remember concern for welfare not a million miles from where we're sitting in this studio actually and a guy was concerned for the welfare of his brother gave permission to bosh the door in to check him out went into the bathroom there's blood everywhere the guy's clearly slashed his wrists mm. and we see him going over the back gate and i chased him across a muddy field in the pouring rain rugby tackled him had to sort of wrap myself around him to stop him you know fighting back managed to get to my radio and call for assistance and then we, there's a sudden moment where he and i locked eyes 
And then we both started giggling. And I said, there's nothing wrong with us. Are there two grown men rolling around in the mud? And that diffused the whole situation. He looked at me, I looked at him, and I said, look, you know I can't let you go. He said, yeah, I know. I said, but I'm going to ease up a bit, all right? Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, what happened is because I shouted for help, the troops come running over the hill ready to defend me. Mm. And I had to say to him, no, he's fine. He's fine. He's fine. You know, just take it easy. And that moment of humour just diffused everything completely from something that was very, very tense. So I'm glad you have definitely the same and to a greater extent, I expect. It's got to be there. Otherwise, yeah, things can become a bit too tense, can't they? Yeah. Yeah. I remember another sort of occasion where I was sat in the back of a Humvee, so a game with the Americans. Another Scud attack. This one was pretty close to home. We were driving on a motorway at the time, driving towards the Iraq border. And the driver just took his hands off of the steering wheel. And we're about 70 miles an hour now in a Humvee. Takes his hands off the steering wheel and just starts fuffling around in the background and pick up his gas mask to put that on. So I sort of jump over the top of him to get my hands on the steering wheel and explain to him that, you know, if there's a gas attack, we might die. But if he takes his hands off that wheel again, we, we're definitely, we're definitely going to die. Yeah. So, uh, yes. It's very yeah. dangerous, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's good that the humour's there. I think that's brilliant. The conversation will continue. But first, Chamber Chief's quickfire questions. Hello there and welcome back to the Chamber Chiefs Quickfire Questions section of the podcast where I'm joined by guests from the membership from all around the region who are in the hot seat to be grilled by me, put under the spotlight, tortured and generally made to feel very uncomfortable. No, that's not true. It's all a bit of fun. I am delighted today to say I'm being joined by Gemma Harris from MLA College. Hello, Gemma. Hi. How are you doing? All right? I'm good, thank you. Yeah. Good. You look slightly nervous. Don't be. It's all. It's the big red buzzer that's doing it. <laughs> yeah, so I've got the big red buzzer. It's like having power. I have power. <laughs> I'd just like to learn a little bit about you, if I may, just to start. Who are you and what on earth is MLA? MLA College is a private higher education provider and we offer postgraduate and undergraduate degrees with a focus on maritime, marine and sustainability. And so we have an award-winning package called our Total Learning Package, where students can access their learning materials from anywhere in the world and study either on or offshore, providing UK degrees across the world. Okay, and what does MLA stand for? MLA stands for Marine Learning Alliance. Sounds good. Now, I've seen (laughs) in your bio, there's another acronym. What is UNITAR? U-N-I-T-A-R. UNITAR is the United Nations Institute for Training and Research. What does that relate to? with you you're part of that or yeah so it's one of our strategic partners and it means we've adopted a responsibility to ensure that we're delivering quality education but with a particular focus around the united nations sustainability development goals so that is one of our key focuses and our programs are designed around those goals and you've come to plymouth from southampton isn't that right i have yes recently moved to the area so big change what brought you here new job new job (laughs) well We're going to find out a bit about, well, not a lot about it. Most of these questions are quite bizarre and off tangent. And just before I start, so I understand you're a newlywed. Yes, got married in October. Very exciting. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Yeah, very good. Right, so now the time of reckoning. Drum roll, please. So you're going to have two minutes. No panic. It's all fine. (laughs) Are you ready? I'm ready. Are you steady? Your two minutes starts now. Chamber Chiefs, quickfire questions. What's your favourite country in the world? Um... America. Sorry, that bad answer. I'll have to come back to that later. Um, what is the strap line of the MLA? That's a very good question. I don't know. Oh, too bad. Best advice you were ever given? Uh, never stop learning. Oh, I like it. Um, if you could start all over again now, what would you what would you say to yourself? Um, be brave. Take the chances. Do everything. Brilliant. Most important person at work? 
Um, there is no one person, it's the team. Oh, I love it. Good answer. A uh, person you'd most like to have eat, to meet in the world? Um, oh, I'd have loved to meet the Queen. Miss her. Yeah, I, no, I feel exactly the same. Uh, very sad. Where will you be in 10 years' time? What will you be doing? Me personally or yeah. MLA? No, you. Um, me, um, I'll have a little cafe by the sea with my husband where we bake homemade cakes. Oh, can I come? Absolutely. Yeah, brilliant. Sounds fantastic. <laughs> I thought you were going to say I was going to be CEO of MLA. Um, <laughs> business you wished you owned? Cafe by the sea. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, a few more about you. So, cat or dog? A dog. Of course, you've seen mine in the studio. Wine or beer? Beer. Um, okay, I'll get that. Lager or real ale? Oh, lager. Okay. Yeah, sorry, wrong. Beach or city? <laughs> Beach. Yeah, always. Uh, always. Boat or plane? Boat. Yeah, good answer. Uh, partner's birthday? 18th of February. Oh, it's my brother's birthday. Uh, but uh, uh, Eye colour of your partner? Uh, blue. Uh, wedding anniversary date? 17th of October. Well, that was easy, wouldn't it? You've just got there. <laughs> Curry or pizza? Uh, pizza. Oh, no, wrong. Uh, last minute, uh, if your last meal for the rest of your life, what is it? Uh, spaghetti bolognese. Uh, best Bond, Craig or Connery? Uh, Craig. Innie or LT? Any. Yeah, good. Tattoos? None. Any fragrance? What are you wearing? Oh, that's it. Two minutes. It's all over. They will never find oh out God. what fragrance you're wearing. That's it. <laughs> Keep you hanging. Keep us hanging. Hey, Gemma, that was good. So you had a bit of an advantage on some of those, I think, in that you're newlywed. If you didn't know the date of your wedding, that, that would have been, it would have been divorced already, before we'd started, wouldn't it? There we go. I agreed with most of your answers, I have to say. There were a few that were a bit dodgy there. I think you said pizza, not curry. I'm sorry, that's just clearly wrong. But I hope you found that fun. It was very fun. It was good fun. And thank you for being a really good sport. Thank you for telling us about, about MLA. Thank you for joining us, Gemma Harris. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Follow the Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce on Twitter at Chamber underscore Devon and search for us on LinkedIn. Make sure you don't miss out on future episodes. Hit subscribe now. In conversation with, supported by Westcott's chartered accountants and business advisors. Now, back to the conversation. What do you think about the role of the military now? I mean, I suppose if I'd asked you this question just over a year ago, Mm. bearing in mind we're recording this on the anniversary of the Russians' Mm. invasion of Ukraine, you wouldn't have thought that we would need a land army in Europe. I mean, that we would have thought we'd gone technologically beyond that with smart bombs and missiles and much more targeted sort of attacks. Is the role changing out of all recognition from what you joined? I think the character changes, some of the characteristics change, but the essence of warfare doesn't really change, and I suspect it probably won't either. And I think, you know, it's very dangerous to sort of think about these transformational moments. Sort of, you know, everything's changed. You know, we've got an Apache helicopter, as we talked about sort of 30 years ago, and that's changed the nature of war. And now we've got this sophisticated UAV systems, or we've got sort of cyber technology. And well, all those things, they add into the picture, but the essential essence of war doesn't really change. You know, I mean, where we are right now, it's an extraordinary place, isn't it? I mean, only a few years ago, we would have said that a war in Europe was largely unthinkable Mm. and if it was to arrive we thought it would come with 10 years build-up pattern and yet here we are so yeah it's an extraordinary moment isn't it and of course it's an uncomfortable feeling isn't it to consider the effects of warfare so close to home we're sort of used to considering a war in a different part of the world it doesn't make it right or wrong no but it's very different we can't relate to it if it's somewhere but it feels desert like or exactly that snowy that's not 
Britain, it, is it? It, it? Exactly. It feels different. I mean, it was one of the strangest things about operating in Northern Ireland in the early 90s was that you know, there you are in full combat gear with a rifle with live ammunition and then walking down next to the boots, the chemist, mm. and the people of Britain. I mean, it's the whole point of being there. You know, we were amongst the people of Britain trying to make it more secure and safe. So it felt strange then. And again, it feels that sort of nature of strange again. This isn't how we thought it would be. No, and I guess that's why we have to maintain a broad capability because you don't know where the next threat's yeah. coming from. Do I remember rightly? I don't know if you know this. I suppose you study military history as well, but when the Falklands conflict happened, we were hard pushed to actually get there, weren't we, and to mm. defend it because we cut back a lot on long-range aircraft, long-range shipping and so forth. So I guess... Well, you probably would say it's a big deal, but you need that all-round capability. Yeah, I, mean, I think you do, and I think in times of sort of budgetary constraint, you sort of look for, okay, well, where can we take risk, you know, in inverted commas, and, you know, what are the things which you think are unlikely to happen? Unfortunately, we don't necessarily have a particularly good track record of getting that right in our history. You know, in 79, in the Not Review, we decided we wouldn't need amphibious troops anymore, so my regiment, the Royal Marines, would have been disbanded. In fact, the plans to disband them were already implicit in the 79 Defence Review. In many ways, the Falklands, showed that actually we did need the amphibious capability and you know, thank goodness for my regiment it's gone on to prove that that's the case in 1999 there was a discussion about would we ever fight another desert campaign and again we removed a lot of our desert fighting capability and then again there we were involved in a desert war so yeah you have to be very cautious at the idea of trying to debalance in certain areas because generally speaking it's pretty difficult to predict where the next war is going to be mm. and i hope you don't mind me asking how do you feel about the sort of politicizing of conflict because we have arguably gone into conflicts that were not for the reason that was publicly said? I mean, how do you feel when you're the soldier? I mean, you're the guy that says you've got to do it. Politics is in everything, right? So politics is in sport, politics is in the way we live our lives, politics is in our taxation system. And, you know, it's no surprise to me that politics is in the military narrative too. It couldn't be any otherwise, could it? But I've always, this is just a personal view, my own foundation of my sort of belief system, as it were, in nationhood, is such that, you know, I believe in democracy. So mm. it's right that the people of this country vote for a government and I I have agreed to be in that nation's armed forces at the point where a democratically elected government decides that they want to deploy their forces to do their business. I think it's my right to go. Or if I fundamentally disagree with that and have some sort of philosophical challenge, then clearly I can leave the services. Mm. But fundamentally, you have to put your faith in democracy. Otherwise, how else can you operate? And, you know, in the, the Iraq conflict is a classic example of that. There are a number of people that over a number of years, well, actually before the conflict and certainly afterwards, have taken apart in an armchair fashion the sort of the reasons we were there and scrutinised the sort of the ethics of the whole thing. <laughs> the um, nine o'clock jury, as we used to call them in the police, who, yeah, who yeah. weren't there when the bricks and bottles were flying, but are quite happy to criticise how it was done at the time. Absolutely. And, mm. you know, there are a number of people that have all sorts of opinions. One of the facts of war is that actually in war things are pretty simple. There is a structure of how warfare should be conducted from an ethical background of your own nation, and there are people on your side and there are people on the other side. And at the point of the conflict, it has to be as simple as that. I mean, it's interesting looking back at the Iraq conflict. Personally, having seen what I saw when I was in the country, having been received as warmly as we were in the, during the invasion stage, and having relieved a lot of people, literally from torture chambers and things like that, one has a sense of we were doing the right thing. Now, whether that fitted the banner that took us there in the first place is a different question. But, but well, you felt you were doing the right well, thing. Well, I absolutely felt I was doing yeah. the right thing. And, and you saw it with your own eyes. That's yeah, the... yeah, yeah. I, I knocked down walls into torture chambers. And when you've seen some of the things that were happening there, you don't have any conflict in why we should have been there. Do you mind me asking, do any of those come back to you at night? Do you reflect upon what you've seen? Does it haunt you in any way? 
not those things, not from Iraq. For me, it felt ethically very clear. As I say, the, the I was cha- thinking more about just what physically you've seen, not the rights or wrongs of it, but just some of the no, but they're the sort of intri- of war. Well, they're sort of intrinsically linked. Is it really interesting studies by Professor King and a few other different people who sort of work in that sort of ethics and society piece about sort of you know the horrors of war can largely exist unfettered if you can't understand the reasons for being there. So, you know, Second World War, people saw, in many cases, much more horrific things. And then some people did go on to suffer greatly from some of the things they saw. But by and large, the sort of the existential threat of the war meant that people understood exactly why they were there and they could deal with the sort of the reality of what they had to do during that war. You know, there seems to be a close connection there between the ethics and the activity you see. But no, to answer your question, no. Well, I'm glad. I guess it isn't right. But a lot of service people have suffered, haven't they, when they've come back? And I think, do I sense the military is looking after their people much better than perhaps historically they did? There's generally a much wider awareness of the damage that can occur to people in horrendous situations. And, you know, the things I saw are nothing to what some people have had to deal with. So I'm not in any way casting judgment on anyone. We all have to deal with our own sort of situations. But I think generally there is a much wider understanding of there's much more that we need to do. I think there's been some really impressive work inside the Royal Marines particularly and also in the wider Navy as to how we can best look after our people. And I think there are some really good examples of how we have gone way beyond what might have been expected some years ago to make sure we look after people. But equally, there is much more we need to do. You know, we need to, as a nation to sort of understand that link between, I guess, my earlier point about sort of democracy and fighting and understand that on the same point as you elect the government to send the people and we accept that and we go off and fight, when we come back, you, the people, need to understand you need to look after the decision you made. I absolutely wholeheartedly agree and I'd take it one step further. I think it's a disgrace to send someone to do a job without giving them the tools to do the job, especially when they're going to put their lives on the line. Whether you agree with what they're doing or not, if you are, as a democracy, saying go and put your life on the line, the very least you can do is give them the very best kit, the very best protection, and as you say, look after them when they come back. Yeah. And do you think that's happening now, or are you still facing cuts in things that frustrate you where you think, oh, we really should be having this armour or this kit or whatever? So I think it's a bit of both. I think the levels of equipment now are far superior to anything I could have dreamt of 30 years ago. I think we're doing some really fantastic work to look after our people and to make sure they are equipped for war. Some of the sort of training programs we take our people through now, and you know, I was responsible for them when I was at the Command and Training Centre, you know, we're moving away from teaching people to shoot rifles on rifle ranges and teaching them how they will operate that weapon system in a war. So very much about snap shooting rather than precision shooting. Let's get the rounds way and let's protect I'm laughing because I remember in the air cadets lying down with what was then a 303 AM field that had a kick like a mule and would send a 14 year old cadet eight foot backwards yeah but lying on a range is very very different to what you actually it it absolutely is you know taking six seconds to get your breathing correct so you can get the perfect shot is not what you're going to be doing when someone's shooting at you so there's been a really sensible change towards you know how we actually protect our people but is there more we can do absolutely and of course Mm. then you get into attention with sort of you know budgets and competing against all the other things which you want to do as a nation nothing's perfect is it but do i remember seeing a picture of a royal marine in all the latest combat kit and the cost of just one man being kitted out it's not the days of a shirt and the boots and a jacket and off he goes i mean there is some seriously expensive kit with a helmet and the night goggles yeah. and the whole stuff anything to do with warfare and defense it's always what kit you've got what kit they've got so you know if they have the ability to operate comfortably at night because of the night vision goggles or whatever and you don't have that then you are putting your people at significant risk so yeah i mean most of our people now are trained in they can fight almost as well at night as they can during the day that starts to level up sort of the condition against uh, adversaries 
yeah starting to move away from the military so i mean is this your last posting i don't forgive me i don't know how old you are but are you gonna stay in forever or are you gonna look for other things or are you here for the foreseeable so i'm 53 and i suspect this will be my last job so generally speaking we retire at 55 um, okay one job interview and until 55 uh, that's not bad is it it's not bad <laughs> what will i do after that i've got to do something i don't know i do quite a lot of stuff with sport generally i run navy boxing and i'm a trust yeah, you're a boxer yourself aren't you? no not of any i've played <laughs> rugby reasonably well but i have box but not to any level at all but i do some stuff with the navy charity as well i'm a trustee on the board of charity there so when i retire from this something in sport or something to do with charity or maybe some network something like that i don't know i've got to keep busy and will we keep you in the southwest are you settled here do you like it here yeah i love it here our first house was just up the road just outside exeter just near ottery st mary we moved away to the states as we previously talked about we moved back to just outside portsmouth that's where the next job took me and we're looking to sort of retire in this area in the next three years yeah we'll be looking around at houses i guess in the next couple of years ideal and so what do you love about this region this county this city Unfortunately, when you go through a warming training, you spend a lot of time on Dartmoor and you don't necessarily enjoy it when you're up there. <laughs> You don't want to go back. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to go back. But after a couple of years, you do go back and you just go, wow, this really is actually wonderful up there. And I still go up there for picnics and have a look around and go for walks. So Dartmoor's wonderful, but the coastline is also is perhaps even more breathtaking. So we love the coastline for one reason or another. I guess, you know, being part of the Navy is a big driver on that. We've lived next to the sea, you know, having been brought up in Bedfordshire, mm-hmm. I spent the next 40 years living next to the sea. So being close to the sea, out there canoeing, bit of swimming, maybe say all of those things that's why Devon is so attractive and to a degree also it's a nice county to live in people are nice it's a nicer pace of life people are more friendly down here than other places I have lived in yeah well I would agree but obviously I think Devon's the best county says the chief executive of the Devon (laughs) Chamber of Commerce but I would say that but I do genuinely think it's lovely and I've got to look at the sea if I don't see the sea for a week or so I go a bit twitchy and I need to go and check it's still there and that nobody's moved it yeah I've got to be by the water just a couple of general questions if you don't mind is there anyone who's really inspired you in life in your role in your who you've really looked up to do you have heroes as such there's a couple of people that you know i've served under generally in the military that have really inspired me to sort of lead in a particular way because of the way they've led and how powerful that's been you know we meet people it's interesting leadership people often talk about leadership as being like a sort of forensic science you know no two things can come into contact with each other without having an impact on one or the other and that's the same with leadership right so you meet somebody who is not a good leader or worse still is a toxic leader and that leaves an impression on you and if you've got any common sense and you come away from that experience thinking i must never be like that person or behave in the way they've just behaved to me but when you meet you know inspirational leaders and i've had the great privilege of working for three or four extraordinarily talented leaders you come away thinking if i can just bring 10 percent of what they did across in some of the ways that i work then that would be good and i can think of a couple right off the bat but without mentioning names because it probably embarrassed him but you know i remember as a junior officer so a lieutenant i think i was a training officer in 40 commando just up the road in taunton and we're up on soldier plane doing some exercise the ceo had sort of said to me let's go out and visit mortar troop this evening pitch black go out in the land rover we'll go and find more troop go and have a chat with them so off we drive i'm navigating from a map we park over just a, a kilometer away from where more troop were dug into a particular woodland and then we walk across over to more troop co has his chat we come out away from there we're all talking about how wonderful it was to sort of see the troops doing well all the rest of it and we're just wandering through the darkness and then suddenly i have this moment of realization that actually the co is walking next to me thinking i know where i'm going and i've been listening to him and so enthralled thinking with his stories he knows where he's going. i thought he knew where he's going and he looks at me and goes how much further is the land rover and i go ah, yeah 
<laughs> no idea. Yeah. And, following uh, each other. Yeah, I mean, that is completely unforgivable. He would have been quite with his rights, and I can think of other CEOs that would have sacked me there on the moment. Again, the CEO lost in the middle of the darkness, in the middle of the soldier plane. But what he actually did was he said, right, well, I'll light a cigarette, and you work out where you are, and when we're all ready to go, we're set off together. Yeah. That extraordinary calmness and humility and forgiveness, and also knowing that at the end of that little experience... And he was exactly right. You know, I learned significantly from that. But without him shouting at you. No shouting. It's funny. I don't know if you've read Spike Milligan's war memoirs. Yes. But he yeah. talks about, you know, some pretty toxic leaders who he, mm. he is vitriolic about how horrible they were. Yeah. And yet he talks about one. I don't know if you remember this. We we're on a route march somewhere in the south of England and a stray Messerschmitt comes down and strafes them on the road and they all dive into ditches yeah. and the commanding officer stood in the middle of the road and lit his pipe. Yeah. And as they're all kind of sheepishly climbing out of the ditches, he said... Do you realise, man, you all did the right thing and I was completely in the wrong? He said, what could you say to a guy like that? You know, yeah. They respected him because he was calm and he would admit if he was wrong and all that sort of thing. Whereas I think some people think as a leader you've got to be sort of shouty and demanding and all that sort of thing, which well, personally I think is the bare minimum as opposed to people who actually want to follow you. Yeah. That lesson, and it was such a silly little thing, you know, for an hour in the middle of Soldier Plane 25 years ago, whatever. But the impact of that moment of leadership was so pivotal. So, you know, I remember, well, actually, coming back to your message this morning, we were getting strafed, and unfortunately, we were getting strafed by American fire. <laughs> As American troops, that <laughs> wasn't particularly badly good. Badly named friendly fire, because it's not very bloody friendly, is it, when you're being shot it's, at? It's definitely, yeah, yeah. Friendly fire isn't, is a good quotation. Anyway, so somebody was sort of screaming at me, what are we going to do? And my reply, I'd already made a radio call to call off the fire. And then I said, well, I'm going to have a cup of tea. And that's what we did. In the middle of that, we had a cup of tea and sat down and, uh, and all the rest of it. And I became quite famous for my cups of tea. Americans don't generally drink hot cups of tea, but they did after that. Yeah, you can't be a good cup of tea. Sorts most things out. Absolutely. Yeah. Hey, look, I'm really sorry I could talk to you all day, but we've come to the end of our time. I am incredibly oh, wow. grateful for you joining us. And thank you for your support for the city and for the business community and especially for the chamber. And I'm sure our listeners are going to love hearing your stories and thank you brigadier mike tanner Stuart, a real pleasure to be here time's a whip boy but really good fun sorry about that That's, uh, not at all great brilliant fun. thank you thank you in conversation with is supported by westcott's chartered accountants and business advisors accountants and business advisors acting for over 800 farmers across the southwest westcott's we're here produced by fresh air studios full audio production services for business podcasts and corporate communications visit freshairstudios.com Presented by Stuart Elford Produced and engineered by Paul Philpot Edited and mixed by Martin Burgess-Moon Production support by Lisa Hartwell Video content by Mark Stevenson Copyright Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce and Fresh Air Studios Limited All rights reserved